The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where every week we work our fingers to the bone to bring you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. So we do this once a month, most months, try to do it once a month almost every month. <laughs> and it's just sort of an open mic day where whatever questions you have from listening to previous shows, or maybe you're in that six week new investors class that Cincinnati Rhea is putting on. And, uh, you know, you had to, you had to leave before the questions were over at 10 PM the last two weeks. The class is actually 739, but I said, you know, if anybody has questions after we're done, I'll be happy to answer them. And it's gone on till 10 p.m. both of the last two weeks. Uh, this would be a good place to ask them, too. All all real estate-related questions are free to ask today. And you can do that either by calling into the studio at 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. Or alternatively, by sending an email to askvina at gmail.com, askvina at gmail.com. If you had missed out on the earlier announcements about that six-week How to Get Started in Real Estate in 2023 class uh, that Cincinnati Rhea is putting on, we are two weeks into that class now, but we still have how to evaluate properties, how to find deals, how to get money. And uh, I can't remember what the last week is yet to go. So you could still join in by going to CincinnatiRia.com, going to the calendar page and um, just signing up for next Monday's class, which would actually get you into all of the remaining classes as well. Um, it is really, truly for brand new investors. We had, we had a bunch of people sign up who were not brand new investors and they got frustrated with me because I was talking about like, here's what wholesaling is. Here's how you do it. And they were like, when are you going to get to 1031 exchanges? And the answer was, this is a new investor class. So if you're a new investor, you can go to com and sign up for the remaining four classes in that Monday night series. Also, if you are in the greater Cincinnati Cincinnati area, the Cincinnati chapter meeting is tomorrow night and it's Get Mentored Night. We're bringing all those folks in who you really want to talk to, but you're afraid to talk to because they're so experienced and so smart and 
uh, setting them at tables where you and your fellow attendees can come and ask them all your questions. Uh, that is in person in Cincinnati. The early meeting is about how to appeal your property taxes with the county on your rental properties. So um, get information about that and get a guest pass or just let us know you're coming at CincinnatiRia.com as well. So uh, going to the emails, because we do actually send out an email the day ahead of a question and answer week to let people know that it's coming so that they send to me questions before I even get into the studio uh, at askvina at gmail.com. I'm going to start with uh, Kathy's question. <laughs> Kathy says, I'm from Atlanta and I use the link to try to access the WMKV station for your question and answer show. But all I got was some man talking about dogs. I love dogs. But i rather hear you. Any idea what went wrong? So, yes, Kathy, I know exactly what went wrong. You logged in a day too early. <laughs> Real Life Real Estate is on Wednesdays from 5 to 6. You logged in the day you got the email, which was Tuesday at 5 o'clock. So I hope you enjoyed the veterinary hour. But, yes, we're always on on Wednesdays to five, from 5 to 6. But... Uh, while you are, you know, next Tuesday when you get your email. <laughs> oh my gosh. Got a whole station full of jokers here. Um, got, uh, uh, when you're, when you accidentally log in on Tuesday and you're like, oh no, I wanted to hear Vita. You can always go to realliferealestate.com and you will find a catalog of, I don't know, it's got to be 200 past shows at this point. And you can listen for 24 hours while you're waiting for the live show to come on. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what happens, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you for your, um, anxiousness to listen to the program. You were just a day early. Okay. So question from Leslie in Cincinnati. She says, I have a few questions for tomorrow's show. She, that's today now. Can you please explain who the target buyer is for repair for equity type properties, how you market them, what type of legal arrangement this is, who pays for the materials, and how you vet your potential buyers? So, um, yeah, that came up because there, uh, Cincinnati is actually doing a, an all day repair for equity class a week from this Saturday. So I guess that's February 11th. Um, I guess I should find out since I'm the one teaching it. And I had sent out in my e-letter a, you know, I really like repair for equity deals because for a certain kind of property, they make a whole lot more money than a wholesale deal does. And also with a whole lot less hassle, at least from my perspective, uh, that a retail deal does. So just quick, quickly, so that you understand the nature of Leslie's question, uh, this is a deal where you buy a typically single family home, typically in a rental or bread and butter area, you ideally get some kind of owner financing when you buy it. And then instead of renovating and reselling it, which can, you know, create a nice profit, but also requires that you renovate it. And instead of wholesaling it, in which case you get a small profit in cash, you 
actually sell it to someone who's got the skills to do the work and who lives in it while they do the work. So it's a, it's a very particular kind of property. It's a single family home that is what we call ugly, but livable. You know, we're just going to do a whole show on that next week. How about that? We're going to do a whole show on how repair for equity works next week. Um, but the questions that Leslie has is like, who agrees to make monthly payments for the next 25 years to buy this house when it needs a kitchen and a bath and flooring and paint? And how do you find them and other things? So uh, the who, Leslie, is my my favorite type of applicant for this is somebody who already works with their hands. So somebody who is a contractor, um, I've had people who, uh, I remember I had a buyer who his job was, he was the head of maintenance for a, a really large assisted care facility. So he was in charge of like making sure everything ran right. He worked with his hands. And these are people who, for whom putting in a kitchen, putting in a bath, replacing a water heater, flooring, paint, that sort of thing, it's just easy for them because they do it all the time and they have anything that they would need to do to the house that they didn't know how to do. They've got friends who do and they get their supplies at places that I can't access because I'm not a licensed contractor. So they're paying less for the kitchen cabinets than you or I would pay for the kitchen cabinets and they can do, um, they can do the work to the property that would costs you a lot more for a lot less. I'll, I'll give you an example. The latest repair for equity deal I did, if I, if I repaired it for rental or resale, it'd be about 35000 in labor and materials. I'd be very surprised if the buyer who's going to live in it and fix it over time as their time and money allows, I'd be very surprised if they spent more than seven on it because they're going to get cheaper materials. They're going to do the work themselves, etc. So the the kind of buyer I like seeing applying is somebody who says, yeah, I've been a contractor for the last 20 years and my tax returns and my credit report don't show that I'm qualified to buy a house with a bank loan, but I love this house because I can afford the payment. It's cheaper than rent. You're giving me a break on the price because I'm doing work and I understand the value of owning a house for myself and my family. Um, we typically market them in the same way that you market a rental, you know, rentals.com. Craigslist, places like that, not multiple listing. Uh, I've put some of those in multiple listing service over the years because I thought there's some agent out there who has a buyer who can't qualify for a bank loan, but who has enough money to put down to pay the commissions. And I've never succeeded in getting that kind of buyer in MLS. What I get is a bunch of offers from people who want to pay cash for the property. And that's not what I want to do. I want to sell it with terms. Uh, here in Ohio, we would most typically use a contract for deed for that, or what's called a land contract. That just has to do with how long it takes to do a foreclosure in Ohio and some land contract default rules that, that make that a shorter process because you, Leslie, probably cannot afford, you're not Bank of America, you probably can't afford to spend nine months without payments of any sort and spending money on legal bills to do a foreclosure. So you probably would like to, that to be like a 60-day process instead of a 9- or 12-month process. In other places, it would make more sense to use a mortgage and a note or a deed of trust, and it has to do with foreclosure laws in different parts of the country. 
the buyer pays for materials because it's his house. In a land contract, my name's on the deed until he makes the last payment, but he has equitable interest, which means I basically have no rights to the house as long as he keeps making his payments. I don't have the right to live there. I don't have the right to rent it out to somebody else. I don't have the right to make changes. He's the owner. Uh, how do we vet them that they have the skills to do the work, the work properly? Uh, it's a combination of kind of knowing what they do for a living and also everyone who applies, whether they're a contractor or not, we ask them like, give us three people for whom you have done work on a house. And we call them and say, did they do it? Were they good at it? And what is the typical timeline or life cycle and exit strategy for this type of deal? Uh, timeline depends on how expensive the house is. I've had properties that were cheap enough that the buyer could pay them off in as little as 10 or 11 years. I've had properties that were expensive enough that it had to be a 30 year deal in order for the payments to stay low enough to be affordable. The exit strategy is hopefully keep collecting payments forever and ever and ever until they make that last payment and you sign the deed over. That's not always how it works out. Um, I just had, I just got a, a message that one of my repair for equity buyers has actually sold, found a buyer for his property. <laughs> so he's going to pay off the quote loan. It's not really a loan, but he's going to pay off the deal uh, what works out to be about six years early, I think. So yeah, they're, they're very interesting deals and there is obviously a lot to them, which is why the all day class on February 11th. It's question and answer week here on real life, real estate investing. I am your host, Vina Jones Cox. I am looking forward to your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, as it often is in the first week of, first Wednesday of each month. Taking all real estate related questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. <coughs> I think, I think, I well, I feel like, I feel like I, I caught something from George now, you know, from 10 minutes ago. Um, question from David, who is from Tiffin, Ohio. Uh, David says, uh, I just finished going through a financial calculator book and near the end, it mentions yields. Could you give an example of when this would be used? I haven't been exposed to that very much and know very little. The author gave an example of a trailer being paid for in cash with a return for 15%, then stated that getting a loan would make it more profitable. I can see the math in the explanation, but he mentions getting a 92% yield, but cor correct me if I'm wrong, but a 92% yield on $100,000 should have been 192 at the end of it. Couldn't a person say a 92% return is yield terminology used mostly for deals that can fluctuate because of expenses like single family Rentals or apartments, I'm a tad bit confused. Wow, a math question to deal with on the radio. <sighs> you guys don't have any plans on turning this into a TV station any time in the near future, right? Because it would really help me to have a whiteboard right now. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, I mean, it would help me to be able to show a whiteboard right now, I think is the correct way to say that. Um, yeah, so david it's, that's that's a really good question and i I want to just start by encouraging everyone who's going to do any kind of investing that involves 
investing money and then holding on to properties for the long term, whether that's single family homes, apartments, mobile homes, you're going to rent them, you're going to lease option them, land contract them, note them out, whatever, to take a good financial calculator course and to study things like cash on cash return and yield and internal rate of return because we tend in our business kind of the small investing in small properties business to operate on some numbers that are less important to our real lives than other numbers so i'll give you an example this example this example that you looked at of a trailer being paid for in cash and getting a 15% return i am going to guess from the fact that you later mentioned $100,000 that it was a $100,000 trailer and that the rate of return of 15% was calculated by saying and at the end of the first year i got 15 i had a total of $15,000 in cash flow i had about what $1250 a month in cash flow one of those two things is more important than the other i got a 15% rate of return i got $1500 in cash flow for most people the rate of return is like a it's it's a nice number to look at on your spreadsheet but what was important was i got $15,000 in cash flow cuz we can't eat rate of return now, where rate of return maybe becomes important is I have $100,000 and I can either use it to buy a trailer that will get me $15,000 in cash flow, or I can use it to buy, to put down payments on two single family homes, which will then get me how much cash flow, right? But the, the way we, the way we would say that is I got a 15% rate of return by buying the trailer, but I got a 29% rate of return by buying by using the money for down payments on two single family homes. Okay. The reason, gosh, I hope everybody has a pin out. The reason that then borrowing the money to buy the trailer resulted in a higher yield was it required less cash up front. And I don't, I'm not looking at the, at the actual problem you read about in the book, but if you had only put down $10,000 and borrowed the other 90 or you only put down $20,000 and borrowed the other $80,000 to buy this, your rate of return shoots way up because now I only have 20000 in the deal. But what else happens, David, when I borrow money to buy a property, I put less cash into it, but what else happens? My cash flow goes down. I don't get the $15,000 this year anymore because now I have to use some of that $15,000 to pay back the loan I got. So my rate of return, yes, it's gone way up and I still have 80000 of my dollars because I only used 20 of the 100 I had and I've still got 80000 more I can go invest someplace else. But my cash flow may have gone from 15000 to 5000 I eat off that cash flow. So I can say my rate of return is now 92%. Look at me. Woohoo. I can write a book about it now. 
the important thing is, was I able to use that other 80,000 to generate more than the 10,000 I gave up in cash flow by borrowing the money? And I'm guessing that the answer in this case was yes, or else it wouldn't have been an example to use in a book. And no, a 92% yield on a hundred does not mean you got 192 at the end of the year. It means you got 92 at the end of the year, but that's not what this example is saying. It's saying I only put 10,000 down and I got 9,200 at the end of the year and I still have the asset. So next year I get another 9,200 and next year I get another 9,200 and next year I get another 9,200. So that's my 92% rate of return. And it was created by putting less money down, also getting less cash flow, but the cash flow was a much higher proportion of what I put up front. So that's, that's the best job I can do, folks, of explaining a bunch of math over the radio. And I know it's, it's tough, but, um, yeah. And, and, and by the way, we kind of use these things. We kind of use these different terms rather loosely. I, I suspect that in this case, he said yield, the author said yield meaning cash on cash return, which has actually has a different meaning that meaning than things like internal rate of return. But that's no, normally when somebody says, well, I got a 92% yield. What they mean is look at the money I put in, look at the money I got out the first year. And that was my yield. I would call that a cash on cash return, maybe to be a little more accurate. So thank you for your question, Dave. Appreciate it. Um, question from, let's see, that's not a question. That's somebody sending me the governor's budget for 2023, which I will read later, not on the radio. How about that? Um, question from Marv, who is from Chandler, Arizona. Hi, Marv. Hope you're enjoying your warm weather there. Hope you're getting warm weather there. Question is, can you please clarify whether or not somebody with lousy or subpar credit, say in the 600 to 630 FICO range, can still borrow private money for real estate investing, whether it be a flip, a contract assignment, or a full-scale multi-month rehab, even a day trade, which is just another way of saying wholesaling, Um I listened to a seminar you did a couple of years ago, and I know that you have used private money for years, but wondering if having good credit is indeed a necessity since the private lender will place a lien or mortgage on the property alongside my title insurance policy. Uh, so, yeah, Marv, um, there's you need to do a little more studying on private lending and how it works because the question about placing a lien alongside your title insurance policy is not a question that I, that it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense because the title insurance policy actually insures the title. It doesn't insure like the, uh, like the fact that you would pay the mortgage back. Boy, I wish there was such a policy. Um, so I think you might have a little bit of a squishy understanding of what private lending is. And the other thing that I will say is, Private money is different than hard money. A lot of hard money lenders, people who are in the business of loaning money for a 
rehab resale type of situation have begun to use the term private money. They've they've begun to say we are private money lenders. And I believe that's because a lot of them are actually getting their money from private individuals as opposed to lines of credit or banks or things like that. But there is a distinct difference between a hard money lender who is in the business of loaning money, particularly on flip deals, and a private lender who is literally directly investing their private funds. All hard money lenders have a a set of qualifications that the property must meet and, and or that you must meet in order to make a loan. There are very few true asset-based hard money lenders out there who are, who are just going to say, well, property's worth $150,000 fixed up. We'll loan you seventy five. Don't need to look at your credit score, or your tax returns, et cetera. Um, there's a couple of them left, but they literally want to be loaning you like 50, 60% of the after repaired value of the property. The ones who will loan you 70 to 80% are credit score driven. They're not as credit score driven as banks are. In other words, they can, they can make loans in the lower 600 sometimes, especially if you'll put more money up front. But yeah, they're going to look at your credit score. And it's going to be very hard with a 600 credit score to find a hard money lender who will loan you 70 or 80% of the after repaired value for a flip. A private lender is a completely different person. A private lender is somebody who they have some cash sitting in a bank account or in an IRA or something like that. And they are looking for an investment to make that they feel comfortable with. They don't have, they don't have like that box of you have to have this credit score. Property's got to be worth this much money. You've got to put this much money up front. They look at it much more on a case by case basis. And your credit score is way down the list of things that they look at. Most of the private lenders that I have used have never pulled a credit report on me. Because what they're looking at is, if I had to take the property back, would I be happy to take it back at the amount that I'm investing? Do I believe that Vina is going to pay me back? Do I have reason to believe that Vina has the experience needed to make this deal work? Because the last thing I actually want to do is take it back. So credit score is not important with private lenders. Now, of course, the problem is... Hard money lenders are very easy to find. You can, you go to CincinnatiRia.com right now, click the vendor tab, and there's a whole list of people who are hard money lenders who want to make loans for various things. There's not a tab that says private lenders because private lenders being just individuals who are looking for places to invest their money don't advertise that. They more wait until they see a deal that they're interested in and then they contact you. So the, the key there is show up, show up where the private lenders are, say on the Friday morning haves and wants calls and say, I've got this deal. I'm really excited about it. Here are the numbers. I'm looking for a private lender or partner. Um, here's how much money I think I'm going to need to do it. And Let's get in touch if that's something that you would be interested in. That's how you find the private lenders is you show up, you you help where you can, 
right? If somebody happened to say, oh my gosh, I need a roofer in Chandler, Arizona. And you're like, oh, my brother's a roofer. You should speak up and say, let me give you my brother's phone number. He's a roofer. You you help where you can. You show up just because familiarity is 90% of the battle here, right? People, oh, I know Marv. He's on the whatever, the rehab call every month, whatever it is. And then you ask for help when you need it. So yeah, credit score doesn't matter with private lenders. It does matter with hard money lenders. Some hard money lenders are using the term private, but if they have a set of, I must, we must have these things or we won't make a loan, they're probably not really private lenders. You need to find a private lender. So thank you for your question. It's time for a quick break. It's question and answer week. We are just... Me and Mike are just sitting here ready to answer your questions. Next question you can answer. Mike, how about that? Next question. Very next question you're going to answer. 877-772-9658 or askbina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. 877-772-9658. You can call in during the show or you can send questions really 24 hours a day, seven days a week to askvina at gmail.com. Just be aware I don't monitor that email address 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and your question will get answered on Real Life Real Estate the next time that topic comes up or it's question and answer day, whichever comes first. Uh, let's go to the phones and talk to Dwayne on line one in Missouri. Dwayne, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. Hi, Dwayne. In your first, in your first example, can you uh, sell a, a property like you're talking about? One of those that needs fixed up. Would you consider doing that to a person who is in the business and knows how to fix it up, just doesn't have the money, but has the labor and the knowledge? Yeah. So that's a. And then you. Yeah, that's a little bit of a different deal. Uh, so, so you're talking about selling to an investor instead of selling to someone who's going to live there. Not an investor into a maintenance guy or a guy that does that kind of work, but he will ultimately become an investor because he wants to get into the business. Um, yes, but again, it's a little bit of a different deal because if I'm, if I'm, if my buyer is an investor as opposed to somebody who's going to live there, in some ways it gets a lot easier. Because I don't have to worry about Dodd-Frank rules and and not having balloons in the mortgage and all of that sort of stuff. But but in one way, it gets a little harder. And the way it gets harder is I really want the person who buys the property to make the improvements in the property and make make all of them, right? Really bring the property up into better condition. And there have been times when I've when I've sold a property like that to someone who wasn't going to live there. They were going to rent it. They were going to resell it, maybe. And they have come in and they've done uh, some of the work that I would do to make it into a rental, and then they've gone ahead and rented it. And then their then their then their tenant moves out after six months because some of the stuff doesn't actually work all that well. And then they have problems paying me. And then I take the property back, and that's not my goal. And I I have sold properties like that to real estate investors, but I usually do it under slightly different terms. 
And one of those yeah. terms is, I really want you to go get your own financing within five years. It's not going to be a 25-year deal between you and me. It's going to be a five-year deal, and then you can either sell it or you can go to the bank and refinance it and pay me off. Okay, but if, uh, then if a person's going to live there, do you carry that paper for the either 20, 25, or 30 years that you agree to? Oh, absolutely. Okay, great. And, 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 That's what I wanted to hear. And if I decide I need the cash... I mean, sometimes, sometimes you agree to a deal like that and then you kind of go, man, I need to, I need the cash out of that deal so I can go buy the next deal, right? I can, I can sell the property, but I'm selling it subject to the financing I already agreed to with the person who's living there. So I'm selling, I'm selling it to another investor as a passive investment as opposed to like they can now rent the house because somebody else already has the rights to that house. Right. Okay. Does that, okay. An- does that answer your question, that Dwayne? Great. Okay. Sure. Wonderful. Thank, thank you very much. You know, you're a breath of fresh air. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it, Dwayne. Uh, okay, so about uh, 10 minutes left in the show. If you want to call in a question, 877-772-9658. You can also send a question to askvina at gmail.com. Um, boy, I have a question here that I'm a little hesitant to even start to tackle, but I will do it anyway. It is from Lindsay in Colorado. And Lindsay says, I work with a lot of seniors, so I was very interested in your story where you used a life estate. I would also like to do this. Uh, is it a possibility that you may have some of the house taken from you if this person signing it over needs to use Medicare? I've been trying to research this, but would like to hear of anything we need to watch out for while using these. So um, buying a property... And this usually would be from a senior because these are the only these are the only folks who need to do this. And then giving the senior whose house it is a life estate, meaning that they have the right to live in the property for the rest of their lives. So you've bought the house, but they get to keep living there until they they die or are done with it is a is a strategy that requires a lot of understanding of both life estates, which by the way, are might be a little different in your state than they are in my state. And also of yes, the things that seniors run across sometimes toward the end of their lives, like Medicare and Medicare liens, because yes, Medicare does have a look back period and boy, that look back period just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. It was two years when I first started investing in real estate. Now I think it's, uh, someone can correct me on this, but I think it might be a five-year look back now. Where, oh, my, see, Mike knew the answer. You could have just answered that. <laughs> see, Mike knew an answer. This is great. So I guess you're dealing with this with an elderly relative. Yes. So what that look back period means is, let's say um, uh, your grandmother uh, sells her house today and then in two years she moves into an assisted care facility and a year after that she runs out of money to pay for that assisted care facility. So now she needs to be on, you know, she needs to get Medicare benefits in order to continue to stay where she is. 
Medicare can look back and say, what assets have you sold in the last five years? And did you sell them for market value? And if not, how do we undo that so that we know you didn't sell it to your grandson for a dollar and and basically move a bunch of assets out of your name into somebody else in your family's name? So you can kind of understand why they do it. But yes, it can be a big problem because if if in fact, Lindsay, you paid this senior, well, you live in Colorado, $400,000 for their house. And the reason that you paid 400000 was it was completely non-updated, like, like it needed another $100,000 worth of work. And Medicare looks back and says, well, that's interesting. The market value at that time was 500000 and now it's worth 750000 So we think that something fishy went on here, but you have subsequently fixed it up. Are they going to be able to come back and say... Yeah, we're undoing all that. Here's your $400,000 back, but not your extra $100,000 that you put into it and not your equity that you built up because the market happens to have gone up over those three years. It, it can, it can be a situation where you potentially could lose some or all of your money or at least have to go to court against Medicare in order to try and prove that this was a completely legitimate arm's length transaction. So, um, you should get an attorney who's familiar with both really elder care, right? Life estates, Medicare law, all of that stuff that could potentially go into this. And you should think long and hard about how this might work for you because uh, you know that, uh, uh, what was her name? Jeanette Calumet, Jean Calumet, the, the woman in France who supposedly lived to be 118 years old. She sold a life estate on her apartment in Paris when she was 79 to a gentleman who was at that time 20 years younger than her and who thought, how much longer could she possibly live? I'm going to, I'm going to give her all this money. She'll be able to live off of for the rest of her life. And then I'm going to get her valuable apartment in Paris. And then she proceeded to outlive him. So, you know, there's there's that sort of risk, which you, you may not care about. You may be like, I'm fine with my kids having this property after this person dies. But very often during the rest of the life of the person who you gave a life estate to, you receive nothing. You know, they pay the taxes, they pay the insurance, they pay the utilities, but you have put money into a property that you may not see back out for many, many years. So... There, there's a lot to it. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty advanced strategy, and I would study up a lot on it before you did too much toward putting bunches of money into a property. Uh, so, it's break time again. Real life real estate investing. Uh, at this point, you probably only get to get your questions in by email. You can do that at askvina at gmail dot com. Welcome back to Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Fina Jones-Cox. We do this show once a month in between our uh, guests who have actual topics. So um, congratulations for getting here on this particular day. Um, question from Randy uh, in... 
believe Randy is in Illinois, if I remember correctly, uh, or California. Which Randy is this? Randy uh, says, on one of your previous shows, Kathy Kennebrook mentioned that vacant land with delinquent property taxes owed are a way that she finds deals. She said there are list providers for these kinds of properties. Can you please recommend the names of the list providers you prefer? And Randy, the only way, the only reason I can actually answer this question is because that is not a list that you would typically buy from a list provider. One of the things about public radio is I cannot sit here and say, oh, you know who the best this or the best that, or you should go to this store because they've got the best deals on the whatever. Uh, we just don't do that here. It's non-commercial radio and that is a uh, string dangerously close to the line of being a commercial. However, delinquent property tax lists are very, very easy to get from your county. I I said county. Let Let me say it a different way. From whoever the taxing authority is. I've actually run across a couple of places where, uh, Property taxes are, are dealt with at the city level. It's a city department, not a county department that collects taxes and issues the, hey, it's your delinquent list. Um, and of course, if you were in Louisiana, it would probably be at the parish level, right? So you would identify the area that you were interested in buying some vacant land or any other kind of real estate in and you would track down the taxing authority and you would say, I would like a list of the folks who are delinquent in their property taxes. And that is one of the easiest lists to get from the government. In fact, they normally publish it a couple of times a year. They'll have like a delinquent tax sale or tax lien sale. And they, they used to publish it here in the local paper. It would take up like two full newspaper size pages in tiny, tiny print, but it's usually not a problem to just call them and say, how do I get this? And then they either email it to you or they uh, give you like a password where you can go and look at their list or something. That's not, not a problem uh, typically. So a uh, question from Russell. Did I just get two vacant land questions in a row? Uh, I'm interested in some small lots near me that might be too small for residents that can be used for renewable energy projects. For instance, a parking lot that can have EV charges added. Any thoughts on due diligence and resources to look for on these? Um, some may include small brownfield sites as well. Boy, I'd <laughs> be very hesitant to buy a brownfield site uh, that was a known site unless I unless the EPA had already issued, this is exactly what you have to do to clean this up. And that was affordable. Um, so this is really a zoning question, Russell, because I, 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 it's hard for me to picture what you're talking about in terms of small lots where you could, I don't know, do a plug-in for people's electric vehicles or, I don't know, put solar panels at whatever renewable energy stuff you're thinking about. Um, it's going to be a question of, will the city allow it? Will the zoning allow it? If it's in a commercial area on a busy street, the answer might, the answer is much more likely to be yes than if it is in a suburb. Or you live in Texas where there is no zoning. I mean, that's the other possibility, but I know you don't live in Texas. So um, for my first call would be to the city zoning and planning department 
to say, if I wanted to put an electric vehicle charger on this lot, this parcel number, what would you guys say to that? And if they said, oh, we'd probably let that happen, then the next thing I would do is, if I thought it was going to be profitable, is maybe go under contract, but with, so you know how you can put contingencies in your contract, right? With a fairly long close date and a a uh, contingency that said, I must get zoning approval. Yes, that's an allowable use is not the same thing as zoning approval, because in some areas, in order to get zoning approval for something like that, there's a whole process where the they issue uh, letters to all the neighbors saying, we're going to have a zoning hearing on putting a giant plug on this lot and you can all can come and comment. And if all the neighbors come on and say, I don't want somebody bringing their electrical vehicles into my neighborhood to charge, then it, you won't get the approval. So if your exit strategy requires that you get approval for a oddball thing like that, I would put it in the contract that I don't have to close unless I get the approval. Uh, one more minute left, just enough time to pick up our very last question from David. He says, how do you determine the best choice in terms of selling a repair for equity deal lease option versus seller financing and why? And I got to tell you, David, that answer completely depends on how much money do you have up front and are you very qualified or marginally qualified? If you're very qualified and have 5% up front, going to do the seller financing. If you're marginally qualified and you don't have all the money I want up front, it's definitely going to be a lease option and we're going to try it out for a year and see how it works for both of us. And if you do what you're supposed to do, then we'll convert to owner financing at the end of that time. So thank you for your question, David. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing. 